Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. What are you doing down here, Captain? Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 108. See this Patchum Parabellum comes to you now via towering Pavin crystal transmitter structure. Oh, is that all, Pete? That's all. Well, just a bit of fleet news before we launch into the episode, Pete. Let's start by, first of all, saying that, uh, of course, next week is the fall finale for Star Trek Discovery, but we're not going anywhere in the hiatus. Pete, what's up now? What is coming? What goodies are there for our listeners? Well, we have just recorded our review, and by just, I mean on Friday, (laughs) our review of Thor Ragnarok, so there is that to check out on the Pop Culture Podcast feed. We will be getting together on Thursday to be recording what's going to start off at least as a Patreon uh, bonus that's going to be a limited run podcast, something very different than we've ever done before, um, that will be available for uh, Patreon uh, patrons first um, before we start to close some things and then open some things. Indeed, Pete. So if you are listening to us on the Discovery feed, we hope that you uh, check out what's going on on the Pop Culture Podcast feed. If you're already subscribed to the Pop Culture Podcast feed, you're going to get all that goodness, Pete, along with uh, some some new podcasts. Punisher, which starts in a couple weeks, and Runaways, which starts uh, towards the end of November. Two new, uh, two new stars to the Fantastic Geek galaxy of coverage, and uh, certainly a great time to be listening to Fantastic Geek. So not Star Trek, we get it, but the party continues with Fantastic Geek, so something to maybe tide you over until we officially get Star Trek back. We're told at this point, January 2018, that's not set in stone. You're going to need something in your ears before then. We have plenty of options. And now for our mission briefing. We begin, Matt, right to the title card second time this season that's happened and pick up and medias rest with captain shan koval of the uss gagarin so named for cosmonaut yuri gagarin the first human in space uh very much under attack by six klingon vessels Indeed, in this an episode that uh, that was written uh, with with some fanfare by Kirsten Beyer, uh, somebody who literally was the first face we saw representing the show all the way back at Star Trek Mission New York a year and a half ago, and directed by John S. Scott. And uh, as you mentioned, Pete, immediately there's action everywhere. There's a sweet kind of compact design for the Gagarin. Can't wait to go back and see more pictures of it under attack by those six Klingon vessels. Um, the disco arrives. It is quickly kicking Klingon behind and saving the day. Uh, and there's a wonderful shot as another Klingon ship decloaks behind the Discovery because this fight is far from over. Yes, on the bridge there, Lorca is riding Mr. Reese to target things. Turns out as uh, Lieutenant Wilkinson 
lets us know here it's very difficult to lock onto the Klingons when their invisibility screens are up, I guess, precursor to calling these straight-up cloaking devices. But they cannot fire on them until they are visible, and then we get a Klingon destroyer that has decloaked with two battle cruisers on the Discovery now. It's getting hairy, Matt. What happens? Well, what happens is we have Detmer in action as she helms the ship. We have Reese taking his time to shoot the Klingons. Come on, Reese, speed it up, man. Um, Captain Coville uh, calls for help while there appears to be a break in the action. And honestly, I like in an episode that is that is, let's say, not one of the all time greats, as it was, as I would argue for last week. But with this episode, I like that uh, Kirsten Beyer is playing with convention a little bit because we're expecting disco comes in, saves the day. All are happy. Um, and this was just kind of a pithy start to things. But Captain Koval saying thanks for the help. However, we can't warp out. And you kind of quickly see that, uh, that there's now a phase two of the fight going on. That's Star Trek phase two, Pete. <laughs> a little inside <laughs> joke there. Um, because the attack is, you know, there's a second round of attack coming. And it's time for the discovery to provide some cover. Yes. Uh, Lorca directs the ship in between the Gagarin and uh, two torpedoes are fired. The Discovery takes one, a direct hit, shields below 10%. But as it turns out, they did not get both. And the Gagarin explodes. And there's this business-like air they rapidly go to. They go right to black alert. Uh, we cut to engineering. Tilly is there. Uh, our eyes are drawn to her differently braided hair than normal. Stamets is kind of sluggish in the reaction cube with his cool cybernetic implants there. With, for the first time, we've seen a little piece uh, come out of him as as the, uh, the syringes, I guess. The needles are going in. And Lorca quickly tells them after they warp away, they spore away that uh, there'll be time to grieve, but that this is not the time. And he hands over the con to uh, Aram. I, I like the tone of his speech to me. And I've, I certainly have, have had neither the, uh, the, the privilege of representing our, our country in the armed forces, uh, nor, nor have I known the, the, the terror of being under fire. Um, to me, it's a very kind of no nonsense speech that is a hundred percent believable again, from my kind of fictional, uh, war room armchair, if you will. Um, it's a big loss. It's not, it's not because Detmer didn't fly fast enough. And it's not really because Reese was taking his time. You know, it was, it was a six to one odds if, if not uh, worse off as, as the Gagarin was in uh, dwindling condition and it's war. Sometimes you lose people. Sometimes you lose ships in, in an environment such as this. Um, but he's quickly off to go somewhere else. And I kind of read it as him going to, engineering because they seemed a bit sluggish to get out of there the story goes to engineering stamets seems out of it and then boom we're back to seeing the ill-mannered stamets uh who looks over at tilly why is the captain why is tilly here and then you really captain see tilly visions of the future or of future episodes i haven't seen any we're previews but mirror mirror coming at some point we'll talk a little later in the episode 
there. Um, and then, as you mentioned it, he's he's back to being uh, snippy, later called persnickety by Tilly here. Are you daydreaming? Are you so bored that you're coming up with things before we're flung to the ready room where Lorca is once again with the uh, Starfleet Command Vulcan Taral. And um, if you listen, Matt, it's not on the subtitles, but you can hear the Tribble trilling in his ready room again. Given a lot of the dialogue in this episode, it's got to be important. Well, let's not even wait for theory time, Pete. The Tribble, was the Tribble freaking out? Was it up the, uh, at that register? No, but it was it was intentional from a sound design standpoint that we want to remind you there is a tribble on the discovery. It is making noise. Oh, and when certain characters make certain statements throughout this episode that cause you to do the Vulcan fascinating thing with your eyebrow, uh, you you remember back to. There, there, there is a way to find all of this out. I just want to confirm, Pete, that we can probably, with that bit of information, quickly, neatly put away the uh, Lorca is a Klingon doppelganger theory if the Tribble is there and not having a Klingon freakout. Correct. But, you know, much like Hydra, Matt, if, if I can take on our, our Marvel Cinematic Universe idea for a moment with all those TV podcasts we do there, cut off one head, two more rise to take its place. There is another fan theory, not with Lorca, not with Tyler or Vok that we're going to address today. What? Our theory. And it's a good one. Well. We have to we have to get there in due course. Uh, as you mentioned, Lorca speaking with the Admiral. Where was the backup? It's revealed the backup was taken out by cloaked ships. The, the implication Hoover and the Maroc also ambushed and destroyed. Damn those invisibility screens! I would just argue as a side note that despite what Hoover did, you know, post World War One, that we shouldn't be rewarding his uh, his laissez-faire presidency with naming him after <laughs> starfleet ships but i digress i mean you think you think that the dam was enough but anyhow the point being um that this was a coordinated attack across multiple sector uh, sectors multiple locations um and this discussion well how many of your attackers Lorca, could cloak it's all six and this confirms uh, one of the worst assumptions that uh, Starfleet Command has had, that coal is indeed trading cloaking devices for loyalty, and this technology is just out there in droves. I'm sure they'd be upset if they found out that uh, it was actually Romulan-based, but that's a non-canon connection discussion for another day. By the way, Pete, um, who's missing from the show right now? Hmm. I didn't see Burnham. I didn't see our first officer, Saru. I didn't see uh, Lieutenant Tyler. Well, with that, Pete, we cut to Saru, Tyler, and Burnham on the planet Pavo, a planet of great and strategic importance. And after this kind of razzmatazz opening of attack and great, you know, wars in the stars... Pete, we're back to kind of a, a, an intimate, old-fashioned Star Trek episode here. She's got her personal log going, continuing from, uh, from last week. She tells us that everything that lives on this planet has its own unique tone. It creates a natural song. 
there's even uh, a, a broadcast space by way of a crystal structure. And Pete, do I understand it correctly that the idea is to turn the planet into a type of sonar to detect those Klingon ships afar? It's like you're reading from Byer's script here. <laughs> well, I like that it is kind of neatly spelled out. I think that there are elements of this episode that are a little less uh, complex, either in overarching narrative or in even internal design, as we saw in last week's episode. But this is a this is a a familiar feeling episode. It is, and I really enjoyed it the beginning particularly picking up with the action i enjoyed the setup also the the design here you know we're treated to these uh beautiful blue hues of this landscape which you know this is real landscape that they've enhanced to make seem in some way alien um and to continue with the through line of Burnham keeping her personal log and, and doing this, I did take a little bit of an issue, more than a little bit of an issue with in the uh, log here. She's saying that they need to uh, use the crystal structure uh, to turn the tide in their favor. Um, last week, Matt, in her log, she pointed out we are winning. Well, either it is a little bit of a writing mistake, which I'm not saying is impossible, but couldn't the tide have turned on its own? I mean, look, we've just seen how as recently as this same day, uh, there's been tremendous losses on Starfleet's end as the the unified Klingon Empire continues its assault with cloaking devices. Can't that Can't that sentiment have been nibbling away at the fleet in the last week if we assume that last week's episode was one week ago so again give me a line of dialogue mm. after the insert ship name and insert ship name were destroyed at insert sector name we are now losing the war <laughs> right instead of you're, you're yo-yoing me we were winning last week yes we just had this battle your setup makes them unaware of this battle. They were dropped off 18 hours ago. They're out of communication range. They don't know what's happened. Well, unless you want to make it, Oh, you know what? We just got the Morse code, Tyler. And the Gagarin is gone. Perhaps this was an episode that was uh, perhaps a bit overly edited. Uh, it was revealed last night that uh, there was more of Dr. Culver. There's a whole other Dr. Culver scene that somehow did not make the edit. I'm a bit confused why. I mean, I have not seen the alternate edit, so perhaps that, that would answer it. But in an episode that has 39 minutes of content, and that includes the previously on and the title sequence, um, I, if there was a line that they cut for some reason, cut for pacing that explained this, you could have put it in if there was a whole other Dr. Culver scene. Pete, your thoughts. Well, let's remember that this episode was to have originally been the fall finale, and then they added nine. So clearly they didn't want people coming off this episode and waiting until they picked back up in January 2018 or whenever it is we're going to be getting the rest. Could you have had this been the mid-season finale? Absolutely. It's a it's a cliffhanger. It's literally moving into the next episode. Um, 
you know, we think of it in a, in a way like uh, the, the Borg episode from uh, season three of The Next Generation. Not on that scale, but, you know, taking it from one scene to the next. They chose not to do that. And I have to think for very specific reasons heading into the fall finale next week. Well, now you have me thinking, Pete, where they might have cut stuff away from. It clearly wouldn't have been the Pavo storyline. I mean, let me put it this way. There's not more Pavo storyline at the end. They resolved that, right. um, at least on the planet. Big fight over Pavo. Maybe you move that from the final act here to opening next week's episode. More about Laurel and her fate. Maybe that was this episode. Move next week. I'm not going to complain I mean, it's similar to what happened with Game of Thrones this past season. When you give me a 58-minute a episode and it's jam-packed, that's more than, you know, the 50 or 48 or 44 that you would get for broadcast. So that's a, that's a bonus. Nobody says, wow, Pete, we got 12 minutes extra. I'll be the first one to complain when you give me 39 minutes. Um, you know, but the flip side is I also didn't say, boy, you know, two weeks ago it was extra long and, and so on and so forth. So just make great episodes. Well, what about Colbert? You mentioned that uh, part of his performance was cut. Who else was in sickbay? But Tyler, who do we have an enduring mystery about? Maybe they chose to pair that back. Who knows? These are all these are all good problems to have versus, you know, oh, it's the it's the, you know, it's the worst episode of the season or things like that. We're certainly not going there on this episode. But, um, yeah, if, if it's lacking some punch, you know what? It is a serial storyline. We'll we'll best judge this episode through the rearview mirror or rearview screen uh, next week. But Pete, let's go back to Pavo. The, they, our heroes, are eight kilometers away from the crystal. Saru, 8.4. Eight, well, <laughs> if you want to be specific. Uh, Saru grumbles that he could make it there much faster without the humans. 15 uh, minutes. He could make it in 15 minutes. We see it later in the episode. Boy can run. We talk so much on our various podcasts about exposition and about Chekhov's gun and about setting up future things. I in no way walked away from this scene on first viewing saying, oh, they're setting up a Saru superpower burst later on. I thought this was just getting to know the alien species. They speak about him in the third person. He complains about that. And, and I thought it was just a kind of some human to human gentle ribbing of Saru uh, maybe it's a return of, of uh, Burnham slightly underappreciating Saru, as we saw back in the, the Senjo days. But kudos to them that they're actually setting up the climactic final battle mm -hmm. here in an episode where they're just kind of picking on their big brother. Right. And we're told that Kelpians uh, have been pursued by apex predators at speeds of exceeding 80 kilometers per hour so it can really run um and can sense as far as away as 10 kilometers before the you know you talk Chekhov's gun let's talk about Chekhov's noise on a planet called Pavo Pavo Chekhov there you go <laughs> I just did that um he's tortured by this constant noise and it's at this point that the blue alien light coalesces and though these are not registering as, as life forms, uh, they would seem to be the inhabitants of the planet, henceforth the Pavans, a planet they thought was uninhabited. 
I would just like to say both for this scene and for for in the future, uh, somebody needs to put as part of a standard um, a, a standard away mission kit. You know, you have to have your your little airline pack of the sleep mask and the uh, the earplugs. It it never occurred to me that you might want to keep out alien noise, but I don't know that that is an unreasonable expectation out there in the reality, quote unquote, of Star Trek versus the select few worlds that we've seen over 700 plus episodes where they're not concerned about noisy planets. But I digress, Pete. Um, you mentioned those inhabitants. It's kind of like an energy cloud of sorts. And, um, and uh, Burnham and Tyler are ready to ignore it. But they are also surrounded by further such beings. Yes. And they... Uh know that the transmitter is in the opposite direction, yet they want them to accompany them in another direction before we're flung. Seems like it's been a while, Matt, back to the Klingons, specifically the ship of the dead, the sarcophagus ship. It has been a while. And it's interesting at this point to think that it feels like it's been a while because we spent so much time there in the first two episodes and then, have not been back much. Uh, regardless, we see Laurel 2.0. She's got that sweet, sweet scar. Uh, I, I guess Klingons value such a thing or or their medicine isn't such that they can get rid of scars. Uh, but regardless, Pete, that sweet, sweet scar impresses Cole. And uh, he reiterates that he he's... teases her about it, man. <laughs> he does. He does. He says I... it's an improvement. All right. So maybe that's not as affectionate as... She you know, tries to spin it. Well, I earned it in battle. I wear it with pride. Yes. And and she's prideful. He's more prideful, uh, stating that he's seeking a unified Klingon empire granted under his rule, which is not new news, but I don't think has ever been stated so plainly that his, his uh, desire is not just unity, but unity under him. Yeah. And talking about what she wants and being able to like apparently everybody else just swear fealty and, and get cloaking technology, but he needs uh, an interrogator. She's found out from her spies. Then again, checking the, uh, the lineage she comes from uh, with that maternal house that's been brought up before they have a prisoner. And we know this of course to be Admiral Cornwell who won't speak and that if she, Laurel, can bring Cole uh, some info that will add to his glory, then maybe, just maybe, he'll consider giving her a cloaking device. We get an act break, and after it, we're back on Pavo. They're brought to the, the, the natural tent, the sweat lodge of some sort. Uh, their journey seemingly has ended, and as they kind of chill by that sweet, sweet crystal fire, uh, Saru says that they need to establish communication. Um, he reintroduces himself to the, the energy cloud and notes rather proudly. He notes his rank. He notes that he is a first contact expert. Mm -hmm. um, Specialist, yeah. And uh, reaches into the cloud, finds it painful but not disorienting, and then Pete, some real kind of good Star Trek legalese. It's not quite... It's not quite techno babble, but it's like Trek legal babble. Where are they on General Order One? They're well past that. They now need to immediately follow first contact rules 
And I just like that there's this flow chart of now that we've been discovered and we didn't mean to be discovered, but we've already revealed ourselves. Now we need to do first contact rules. We need to explain everything, get out the paperwork. We cannot proceed without the okay. And I think this is where Bayer shows her chops as a Star Trek novelist. She's written several novels dealing with uh, Voyager and Janeway after they return to the Alpha Quadrant. This is very clearly squared out. I like that we did it between Burnham and and Tyler as a discussion um, with everything there that they can't borrow or alter the property without understanding and agreeing the Povins would have to, to the use of it. So that all squared away. We go back to the sarcophagus ship where Laurel has her interrogation tools. And I, I like the affectation too of the, the guard. And this is the first time we've seen other people with Cole, who are who have the marks on their face, something we come to learn affinity in this episode is paint, not part of their makeup. When I say makeup, not like put on makeup. <laughs> They're but prosthetics. I I mean more so like who they are as as Klingons. Are there Klingons that have red red stripes on their face? because that's a birthmark thing. You know, it was it was unclear when we had seen them earlier, but I love that he like turns his back on her as she's going in to to try to curry favor and interrogate this prisoner and this this guard, this low-level guy uh has no respect for the interrogator. And all of that is captured largely without dialogue with some grunts. And indeed, when we see that guard, at first it's like, oh, Cole is down there. And they don't cut too close up where he has horizontal lines. And we know Cole's are vertical. Like, they don't oversell it. It's just you need to keep up that this is the world that they're living in. And if you don't, you're going to get it later and you're going to get it later. Um, But the show is really trusting that you're just going to go with the flow for now. Inside the cell, uh, we see the reveal of Admiral Cornwell. And she's told quietly to scream. The Admiral declines. Laurel roars at her. She roars back. The guard chuckles and walks away. And with that, uh, Laurel says, now that they are alone, they can talk. Yeah, it was a convincing scream. And again, Mary Chifo as Laurel is eminently watchable even through the prosthesis, which is not easy. And you see a little bit when she walks in that unorthodox white outfit with the bejeweled uh, spines up on the on the shoulders. I don't know if they're meant to be epaulettes or just look really fancy. It cannot be easy to be in that and to to have the magnetism as this character. It's, it's like Takovma gave her a magnetism transfer when he passed away when he was killed but we we can't blow the entire interrogation there we head back matt off one of the stronger scenes to perhaps the weakest scene in this episode i would argue in the series well, Pete, back on Pavo, it's all easy. They just need to convince the alien beings to let them use the planet, win the war, beat the Klingons. And, is that all? <laughs> you know, is that that? That's all it is, Pete. And after the war, Tyler has plans. He's going to fish for fresh trout. He's going to cook them up in his lake house. He's going to go out there on the lake with his boat. 
uh, we're, we're a few lines of dialogue away from imagining Tyler with a nice straw hat and a, a piece of uh, piece of piece of grass betwixt his uh, lips as he kind of lets one foot there in the lake as it just kind of goes on by. Uh, Burnham points out she's got a great future too. Uh, she's going to go back to prison. She does, after all, have the life sentence. Which, if nothing else, Pete, that's a nice moment in this scene to remind us that there is this urgency uh, or urgency ticking time bomb, whatever you want to call it. That there is this this life that awaits her that isn't necessarily Captain Burnham at the end of this season. Well, I think that detail is important. That's the first time we've heard that since she was conscripted into the crew. So to get that piece of information, okay, it's a wartime appointment and war over, she goes back, I think gives us a problem and it's even addressed in this scene. But Matt, you know, Tyler's talking about Lake Shasta's and his sailboat and fresh uh, roasted trout, which is actual heaven. I mean, are we really to believe this guy knows all these things? It, it did cross my mind if we're looking to tally up, uh, you know, Tyler fake out details in the future. Uh, you know, I know it's 75 or 100 years later, but to think of of uh, when uh, Chief O'Brien is explaining to his wife Keiko how his mother would cook meat, and Keiko says, touch actual meat, real meat. <laughs> um, I mean, you, if you want to say that's several generations later and that's at a different time in uh, replicator technology, absolutely. If you want to say, you know what, they're not so quote-unquote perfect in the future that they are opposed to eating the flesh of an animal and, and you know, they, they go for the humane kill, but... Uh, fish are eaten that kind of thing beef and cattle and chickens are eaten in real life i'm all fine with that too it just seems too perfect it reads like this this great dossier of of, of gee the, gee whiz this is what i would do well this is where i think the the scene really goes off the rails because it's tyler that suggests matt they leave the transmitter alone so that she doesn't have to go back to prison because this wins them the war. And then we get a really ham-fisted needs of the many, few, the one, before a kiss. And none of this really worked for me. I read his suggestion at prolonging the war. I read that as, as a charming, sad attempt at a joke. And I don't mean sad in the script. I just mean like, you know, it's like, you know, Casablanca, like, what can we do? Fate calls us, fate pulls us in, the, in a direction different than our heart. That's it. I'll, I'll agree with you, Pete. I guess we're supposed to retcon that the needs of the many, the few, the one, that that is something that's just kind of was said in Sarek's house as the, as the wee barons were growing up. Um, if you're going to ask that of me, I'm okay with it. And Pete, now listen, I, let me, before I say this last bit, let me just say the ladies can go and get any of the smooching, any of the physicality, anytime they want. I'm not telling them that they can. I'm not being puritanical. But for my money to turn the needs of the one to be one of those needs that you start to slake by kissing, I could have done without that. Yeah, I, I think it's just a little much. Thankfully, we cut to Tilly and Stamets in the Discovery Mess Hall, and she wants to know what's going on with him. He is back to his persnickety self, and he dismisses her. 
before she is able to prod him a little bit more and get him to admit that one minute he knows uh, what's going on. And then, Matt, uh, he's not sure what he knows. Things change. It's jumbled in his mind. And she asks if this is a situation that uh, Dr. Culver, his significant other, could in some way be apprised of. And he gives the explanation that this is kind of a no-win scenario, no pun intended, my words. Um, he can't tell Culver, then Culver would simply have to report him, and and there'd be consequences there, including uh, investigation and, and whatnot involving the continued uh, kind of eugenics aspect of all this. So he hasn't told Culver, which if and when Stamets gets found out, that will ruin Culber's career because he will have missed this thing that was right in front of him. Either way, Culber's put in this position where it's, it's either the relationship or his career, and, uh, and, and Stamets has kind of made that decision for the couple. I'll point out too, Pete, that uh, if there is some place in this episode where despite the fact that it is credited to Kirsten Beyer, where perhaps some of the, the weak points aren't her fault. This is a perfectly fine scene in and of itself. It's not poorly written. It's not ham fisted, so on and so forth. It is a tad out of place in an episode that by and large is trying to be self-contained with an ending of, Oh man, the Klingons are coming. Um, I don't necessarily fault her though, for including this scene if the writing room, if the writing, the head of the writing staff, if the producers, et cetera, have said, hey, we need to move the Stamets ball this much forward because in episode 109, halfway through, we do a mirror, mirror reveal or the the tag scene is a mirror, mirror scene or, you know, whatever it is, how whatever their timeline is, whether it's on this side or the other of the fall winter break there's a certain amount of story duty that must be done. And if she's the one to, to do it, a scene like this that doesn't necessarily fit perfectly, it's not necessarily her fault. It feels like a really long time since we saw Stamets now altered as a result of the tardigrade spore uh, injection look into that mirror after he had actually moved away from it and see that reflection. Yeah, it feels like it has been a long time, and I appreciate th that the show has a variety of of mysteries out there. Some some a bit more obvious, such as this, or some more uh, more hidden, as with the Tyler one. But uh, it certainly is all part of the fun. Eventually, though, at a certain point, they need to start to address these, and this scene shows me that they are moving to address some of these mysteries. Back aboard the Klingon ship here now, uh, we have Lorel. Uh, interrogating uh, Admiral Cornwell and some very interesting questions, Matt. What happens to Starfleet prisoners? Hmm. Well, yeah, they're imprisoned. Uh, they're interrogated humanely. They're eventually returned. Oh, oh, so no death penalty if certain people are discovered aboard your ship that aren't human or federation members okay noted there all right i defect i love your reading of it because it supports the, the the most fun theory out there even though we as a fandom are so far ahead of it that um that tyler is vok 
and uh, it's all wrapped in a in, in a cloaking shield of <laughs> Laurel's interested in uh, in in defecting, but she just wants to find out how her how her Klingon boo is doing. Well, there's um, nothing for her there now, Matt. Um, you know, Takovma's successor. I don't know who that was. Was chased away, forever gone. Uh, it sure is. It sure is. It sure is a convincing story she's giving. Um, I don't necessarily buy that Cornwell is taking it hook, line, and sinker. I think that if she's given an opportunity to escape Klingon prison and to show up at the Discovery or any other Federation spot with a prisoner in tow, uh, they're both going to get properly. Um, debriefed obviously Laurel will <laughs> will have the longer debriefing process while in some sort of holding facility but I don't fault the admiral for saying this is a ridiculous scenario but I'm going to go for it because otherwise they're going to you know rip me apart as they uh, as they interrogate me one little detail I want to take Pete and it's probably more a Star Trek nerd thing because at the end of the day the writing needs to be clean and move things along is she really going to tell is Admiral Cornwell, Cornwell really going to tell Laurel that they treat all the aliens humanely? Isn't that kind of humanist, Pete? I don't think it's humanist. I, it's got the word human, Pete. <laughs> I We go back to, uh, you know, inalienable human rights from another Klingon story in, in Star Trek VI, where the, the daughter of the Chancellor, uh, played by uh, Rosanna... DeSoto points out that even her name is a is an ethnic slur. Um, so, okay, could you have? Is there a writerly way to say interrogated in line with all Federation species? It just doesn't move as well on the page. Definitely not on the screen, as if to say humanely. But. Um, you know, her, her vessel, Laurel's vessel is waiting. Uh, oh, you, you'll guarantee me safe passage aboard your ship, right? Admiral the discovery. Yeah. She certainly seems keen to get there. And it's like, Oh, cause the shuttle came from the discovery. Uh, I mean, it doesn't take a great knowledge of Naval tradition to be like, well, they could have gotten like, that's the shuttle that they had, or that's, the, that's from where they launched. It's not the, the ship that they're necessarily going back to again, it suggests that Laurel has a particular interest with making sure things on the discovery are okay. Um, but we move back at this point to Pavo where communication is happening, happening slowly. Who are these aliens? turns out they are the planet. They are peace. They are harmony, Pete. They have energy. They have the Trek force that binds the galaxy together <laughs> and flows through us and so on and so forth. And it's just, it's just totally happy. They're desperate to know and to be known. Yeah, that's what I appreciated the most and what falls contextually in with the end of the episode. Um, that they've been trying to reach out since the beginning and, and now they're able to do that and having a Starfleet away team arrive there with technology that allows them to further uh, enhance and broadcast their signal um, on top of the fact that these benevolent aliens, despite the fact what goes on with Saru, which I think we really need to talk about, 
these benevolent aliens think they're going to solve this problem between these two warring factions. We have Saru, who again, he's feeling so tired. Uh, the noise of the planet is tiring. I just want to point out, Pete, my idea about earplugs, okay, I don't know in the future, I guess, you know, all all Earth-based uh, sales companies will cease once uh, replication technology gets there. But you can get 50 pairs of soft <laughs> foam earplugs from a certain river-sounding-based website, which sells things, for Eight dollars and fifty-four cents. These can block thirty-two decibels of sound. I don't know why. I mean, I know why for story reasons. At the end of the day, this is a story that needs to happen, and Saru needs to be kept annoyed by uh, by all this. But the notion that they send them with some kind of portable glowy beds in their in their gear, but they don't have some earplugs. Come on, come Where on. Where are you we putting them in uh, a Kelpian's ear? Well, you uh, see Pete those things. They're like. <laughs> Conk shells. <laughs> Listen, if Burnham can get a new outfit by just saying, replicate me a new outfit, then surely you can get, you know, Saru can just go down to the, uh, to see Dr. Colbert or whoever has the highest uh, ear, nose and throat uh, training. They'll do a scan of the ear. They'll just, it's, it's quick 3d scan, send that into, uh, into the 3d printing software and boom he's got some kelpian earplugs <laughs> it's just whoever your whoever your supply officer is should have put them in there pete i want to see the web only star trek discovery supply officer is lazy and not doing his job he's the guy behind the scenes it's like life of brian he'll be all the way in the back what what are they saying what are they saying there's something about a sermon or there's something about we're going to attack the who and uh i'm telling you pete it'll be a big hit we'll have to see about that I like the shot later that night, the overhead uh, camera and then the uh, editing kind of speeding it up here, really selling, helping us to feel what Saru is feeling with this constant noise. He goes outside, he pleads with the alien beings to please make it stop. And then it joins with him. We get a little bit of recap. We get some exposition as far as the the afraid stuff about his race everything there but then the noise stops yeah and and right before it stops it's it's interesting the the, the images that they cut in there really suggesting that that he does indeed sense death he wants peace but this idea of peace through war um, but as you mentioned, that moment of, of, of desperately wanted quiet, we cut to the next morning where Saru is super chipper, almost too chipper, Pete. He says that he has communicated with the captain by way of boosting the frequency via the planet. Oh, and don't worry, the Povins are totally cool with it. <laughs> credit to the production, credit to the music that here immediately is chipping away at his at Saru's perspective, because the music tells us that things are not all right, which I think we would have suspected anyway, but music is doing its job to lead our emotions and we're not comfortable with what's what. We're not. And I think that's the way it's meant to be. Um, but, you know, having gotten a, a great night's sleep and all, all the telltale signs of, of this classic Star Trek trope, that uh, a member of the away team is now under some other influence. Um, you know, 
the the biggest takeaway I got, other than the the creepy factor there, was him placing a hand on each of their cheeks, in which we got to see close up on Saru's fingernails for the first time. And damn, if Homeboy doesn't need a brush and some soap. We get an act break and we return with uh, with the idea that uh, they need to continue the mission. This is Tyler saying it. Tyler does seem a little unfamiliar with protocol, um, you know, given that there's this clear uh, General Order 1. Okay, now that has been superseded by first contact because there's been unintentional first contact, and that's it. It's been made clear there's nothing past either successful first contact or I guess if it's unsuccessful, you pack up and you leave. Um the show gives enough wiggle room he wants to be uh you know he's been charged with ending the war so you can bend the rules a little bit um but for the record pete he seems unfamiliar with protocol first and then it's the oh yeah because i want to stop the war you know and whatnot uh and with saru out of the picture and with saru clearly under the influence uh that's d-u-e-b uh driving while under the influence of energy beings or something tyler (laughs) assumes command pulling rank yes but prior to that matt um tyler points out that saru is lying and in my notes i wrote it takes one to no one the story returns to the klingon ship and uh if laurel is giving a ruse to uh cornwell it it certainly is a good one she said she says that she hates cole and his pretty painted face (laughs) that's a great line (laughs) i love that she is floating that this face paint is kind of an arrogant affectation yeah um oh and by the way she also wants to blow up the ship's warp core on the way out yeah and points there double points there particularly because of mary chifo's pronunciation uh, and and delivering of the line a pretty painted face with you know all the klingon stuff on her but points off matt you know the commander of the ship just happens to be walking down the end of the hallway where you're escorting a high value prisoner at the end of your mechleth and that's where it felt not for Laurel's purposes, because we never, ever deny that she hates Cole and that she wants to get him out of the way. But from the writing standpoint of, oh, all right, here's a scene where she can prove her worth in front of him. And uh, of course, Cornwell is able to get the blade, is able to fight. Um, And the scenes blocked out very, very particularly Laurel um, hits her with the headbutt and then electrocutes her. So we're never really questioning that she's dead. It's more of a, I'm going to incapacitate you type of thing. And and more so the electrocution to kind of sell it more than anything else. I had read the scene ever so slightly differently. Um, I, if that was Cole at the end of the hall, I hadn't. It was indeed Cole. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, regardless, I, I felt that the the fight was a bit of a ruse fight, you know, like pro wrestling, you know, hit me, hit me. Uh, although I think at the end of the day, um, A, it is, as you say, that uh, that that uh, Cornwall gets her clock cleaned and B, 
probably gets beaten more than she planned, but is also alive at the end, although the episode does not fully tip its hand in that regard. Uh, the scene ends with Laurel declaring uh, that uh, Cornwall is dead to, to the other Klingons. And she says, no, no, I'll dispose of the body. And a uh, great view of, uh, of Cornwall being pulled off camera and kind of mm-hmm. sliding along the, the really ornate floor. Back on Pavo, Saru brings food here, wants to know where Burnham is. Oh, they had a fight. She's walking it off, Tyler explains. But then he starts to um, distract uh, because, again, he's not at all practiced in in any tools of deception, Matt. He wants to know. Um, I'm sorry. He asks about the, uh, the the sound when they first got here. Saru said it was a constant assault, but now it's not. And the discussion turns to the war and he doesn't just want to win. He wants to hurt those Klingons of which he is not Matt. He is not a dirty, filthy Klingon like the people he wants to hurt. Not at all. Yeah. He wants to make them suffer. And, uh, Saru at this point picks up a piece of crystal off the ground. He does make reference to, you know, this has been given by the planet for us to have a common frame of reference. To me, it kind of seemed that it appeared out of nowhere, but, if it appeared out of nowhere, I get it. It's the planet. Is it a it. Pavan Tribble? And is that why Tyler recoils from it? And then Saru's threat ganglia come out and tells him his intentions are false? <gasps> Indeed. I increasingly think, Pete, that they are setting us up for a, a twist that we would never see coming, except we're all on the internet sharing these things and making the connections faster than they can make it um we are the borg um but not only are the intentions false but we kind of hide what might be other false intentions uh, in the idea that uh that tyler is trying to delay saru it's all about burnham where has she gone cut to burnham approach uh, approaching the base of the crystal it's crystal base you might say and <laughs> crystal uh once <laughs> crystal palace as she arrives at it she attaches a device it starts to beep it starts to whir it's doing its thing pete but wait, look, up in the trees, it's a it's a bird, it's a plane. No, Pete, it's Saru racing at top speed. In those hooves, yeah, sped up the, the footage there. And just as Burnham is establishing a link with Discovery and the crystals begin to pulse, we got a great shot of him coming down the cliffs. I'm not quite sure why he didn't do the, the superhero jump, but maybe uh, he can only put so much pressure on those hooves before we go to the sarcophagus ships morgue which is not really being maintained it's not pete and furthermore okay this is where we need to say goodbye to some characters she sees a sarcophagus and she sees some bodies it's kravek it's torath Pete, it's Silrek, for goodness sake. Think of all the time that we've spent talking about Silrek. Now Silrek, he or she or they, is no more. Um, Laurel intuits that there has been a double cross of sorts. She will avenge them. She yells this really loud with the door wide open. If you're going <laughs> to yell treasonous things when on Cole's you know, recently improved Klingon ship of the dead from which he is printing out sweet, sweet cloaking devices to further himself. He's going to build the cloak wall. Don't say it with the door open. Um, but she does I, leave Cornwall's body there. I have to wonder 
whether this dialogue is written more for what she suspects might be a Cornwall who is uh, gaining consciousness, although it's delivered in Klingon. Um, but clearly these, these dismembered bodies, this is not the way of Tukuvma and his disciples to treat the dead. And here they're piled up They're They're, you know, some of them aren't even all there. Yes, they're they're not Klingons that we knew, Graft and Torak and and Silrek, um, but she's clearly emotional about it. I almost wonder though if we're trying to sell this a little bit more for the audience, so that when the admiral comes to and oh, I was in with these bodies and I heard her and whatever, um, I, I wondered if a little bit of that was going on. Again, I think that this episode can only truly be uh, be judged when we see what comes after it, particularly as we approach this end point where, you know, with some stuff maybe pushed, uh, pushed to push into the next episode. Um, we need to see the next episode. Time will tell. Uh, we get an act break and then return to Pavo. Burnham is barely able to get out a signal. Then Saru attacks. His strength is obviously superior. Pete, he does the Star Trek double fist punch mm -hmm. uh, on the tech that's connected to the crystal. It's a solid fight. Points off for Saru, who shouldn't keep kicking her towards her phaser. Um, he is he's a bit off in the head. He, he is stunned twice and then finally starts to back off. Yeah, and this clearly isn't the harmony he's talked about. But um, I, I really appreciated Doug Jones you know, pathos in this scene, you know, you won't stop taking. Now you're going to take this away from me too. No, you're not. He's, he's got some peace. He's under the influence of these aliens, but here he is once again at odds with, uh, Burnham and she tries to explain to him, listen, I, I would give up everything for some, some peace but, you know, this technology, what they have could help us end the conflict. Um, Saru just does not want, on the aliens' behalf, the, the Klingons to discover them and to hurt them. We have the blue energy helping with exposition as it brings Tyler to them. And um, uh, there, there's a pleading that goes on with the energy uh, and, and Burnham adds that they are truly trying to bring an end to the conflict. And I kind of felt like it's a rather rote scene in which they explain that the Klingons are worse. The Federation war is better. Uh, and then we kind of just get, you know, well, first of all, we get this idea that that there is this kind of objective goodness, which I buy from the Federation. But it, I think it's a little difficult to sell to a third party. Um, then we get kind of some sweeping shots of the crystals pulsing with energy, which left me confused. But now I realize, is it sending out what we will learn in a bit is the signal on Federation bands and Klingon bands to to try and bring that peace and harmony. Yeah. Before Lorca locks on all of them and brings them back in sick bay. The only time we see Culber in the episode, he tells Burnham to keep it brief before she talks to Saru. He heads across sick bay to tend to Tyler but strangely, we never see a scan or anything done there. Matt, we, we've had like no medical stuff go on with Tyler, at least 
directly. So who's to know if weird readings are coming back? Oh, you know, but you just spent seven months in Klingon captivity. So so what if if it's like that? If it's revealed that (laughs) all along, (laughs) Lieutenant Tyler, from when he came back, that he had two livers, an eight-chambered heart, 23 <laughs> ribs, two stomachs, and three lungs, along with a double-lined neural pia mater, then that will be a bridge too far. I will fully accept in the world of sci-fi if they, you know, if we see the the Vok montage where there's this painful process of of surgery and just kind of, you know, it, it could be a 20-second montage for this idea that they are absolutely rewiring him from the ground up to to pass as human it better be that not just oh man you know saru looking at a old medical report pardon me burnham how many stomachs do you have because (laughs) lieutenant tyler has two well consider this what did the povins do when saru and uh burnham were fighting they brought tyler to them Okay, why? Why is a, is another Federation person really gonna solve that issue? Or are we trying to bring all parties together? Like happens at the end of the episode, the 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 glowy rocks seem to think something was up when he recoiled in the in the sweat lodge. I, I'm just saying. Well, regardless, uh, I love how in this sickbay scene, Saru is melancholy, realizing that he turned on his shipmates. And then he explains in Doug Jones's best scene yet that he was finally free of fear for the first time ever. And just this really, this really heartfelt notion that this place gave Saru the best Saru he could be. It just led to awful consequences. Which I can't quite square for myself and i I think a little later you've got to explain to me because he was under the influence yet it it was without fear and and it was better i i i don't get it well i there's an explanation from one of our podcast pals that i will happily share in a little bit excellent back to uh the sarcophagus ship laurel um, has information that she's gleaned from the Admiral, you know, before she tried to <clears throat> escape. Um, and of course, it's information about the discovery, which has aboard it, Matt, technology that would allow Cole to expand the limits of his empire. Um, but uh, Cole points out that Laurel was reckless and that's why she got away. Um Lorel says, if you fail to see my value, I'll take my leave. She's then cornered, made to kneel, told there'll be more prisoners, then anointed Matt with the pretty paint um, and says that she feels honored. But talk about deceit and uh, the matriarchs she studied with. Uh, Cole uh, sees through it. And uh, his boys are going to show uh, Laurel how House Core treats liars as she's taken away. I will admit it was shocking, particularly since I was not sure the entire time whether whether we were dealing with, um, you know, she she's going to pick up the knocked out Cornwell despite the 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 the, the, the yelling and whatnot. Um, 
you know, kind of like where the double cross exactly was. That, that, that's my point. Um, but then I certainly did not see this coming. That's that's the bottom line. And it's 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 a good reveal. It's a fun reveal. And I cannot wait to return to that storyline. Uh, well, next week, you might think that we're about to head back to the discovery. But oh, no, Pete, they the Klingons receive a signal It's from a planet called Pavo. And it's an invitation. Pete, take us back to Discovery. Is anybody else getting this invitation? Yeah, the uh, Mr. Bryce here um, is picking this up, and it seems to be a signal that is increased by 10 to the 12th power. Lorca was under the impression they uh, were successful, that they repaired the sig- signal inhibitor. Uh, that Saru had destroyed. Instead, the music is gone, Bryce reports. This is just a massive electromagnetic wave. And Tyler backs Burnham up that they did as they were ordered. Yet this new signal, Matt, going out on Federation subspace bands as well as Klingons, it's an invitation for the enemy to join them there. The Povins did this. They think they're helping. But strangely, Matt... Tyler knows about the ship of the dead, the sarcophagus ship that is the massive signature heading towards them at high warp. Well, to be fair, he's also looking at his security sensors and whatnot, but the episode ends on this note. Do they flee or do they fight? Burnham certainly is hoping for the latter. Pete, it looks like the discovery is not the only one. We've got a threat analysis coming in. Let's start with Laurel. Yeah, I love that uh, Mary Chipo has returned to us after a couple episodes out. And she really brings you a presence that I think you can sympathize with at the same time. I don't feel I can completely trust. And it's a unique way to play the character. It really is. And I like that I like that with all these machinations of the episode, we still don't know which way she is leaning. And furthermore, we don't know what her fate is. Uh, the show would be poorer if it's like, you know, we, if we return next week and it's like, Oh, we were just kidding with you. This is our, now we're taking you to the beer hall. Um, but certainly uh, there's something about Laurel where we feel sympathetic to her and, and, goodness i don't want to see her uh off at cold's hands or anything like that i want to see her i don't know somehow be able to live long and i don't know prosper or something like that whatever klingons do yeah uh cole with the revelation here about the face paint i think comes off even more vain in the dribs and drabs we had gotten him to this point now in this episode he is full-on gloating the presence that uh, Kenneth Mitchell is is bringing here, um, again, the the counterpoints to that of Laurel. I appreciate that in this series, which has, you know, the, the appropriate 21st century multi layers to heroes, anti heroes. You know, is Lorca a bad Starfleet captain who's the kind of bad that we need during wartime and things of this sort? That we just have Cole as the full on mustache twirling villain who he's out there to build his army, he's out there to consolidate power, he's out there to be the guy. 
And he's upfront with that. He's smart. He's going to take the religious fundamentalism of Tacovma, uh, look at that hungry crew, give him some, you know, targ meat and some whatever, some uh, Klingon octopus, and win them over because he wants to. He wants to build, build, build that power. Last on the list, Pete. It pains me to say this. One of our threat analyses. It's for Lieutenant Commander Saru himself. Yeah, and to have him wind up as a threat here, taken over by the Pavins, smashing communicators and Starfleet uh, issue technology and beating up Burnham here, something I'm sure the, the character might have wanted to do before, but now under the influence of these still not really understood aliens is able to do it and kind of get away with it. Well, one of our pals has an explanation. We'll get to that shortly enough, but I, I like this idea that this is a planet that to a certain degree sets, uh, sets him free. That's an interesting way to do, you know, the obvious comparison to uh, this side of paradise where, where Spock gets a face full of spore and all of a sudden now he's space happy because he's getting the 1960s space high and maybe life is better living living with a J than it is looking at the real world. But actually you need to look at that harsh world uh, to, to, to confront life, et cetera, et cetera. N neat twist here. I wish that perhaps the mechanism of his uh, manipulation was not quite as familiar as it is in star trek terms but uh again i think that we need to properly fully appreciate this episode uh after we see the next one well matt as i mentioned before we're going to be laying down a new product that uh patreons are going to be the first ones to be able to get their hands on a little later this week so uh whether you contribute to the max or whether you pay the the dollar that's gonna get you in the door there and help us pay our bills as bandwidth is coming due for the end of the year and some other things improvements we're looking to make uh everybody's gonna get that exclusive podcast content so get yourself over to patreon.com slash fantastic geek today we are so appreciative that we have our crew of people on Patreon helping keep this ship afloat. Pete, who would be swapping out the spore vials if not for our <laughs> pals there? So uh, glad to be sharing that 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 new thing that you know, depending on how it goes, it might be a while before that reaches the masses. So the the extra exclusivity there certainly an appreciated thing. And uh, as always, we say thank you to our patrons. And just with that, Pete, it looks like we have some information coming in on the long-range sensors. Where do you want to start? Let's go, as I like to, chronologically. We'll start with Stanitz, who calls Tilly Captain. Is he time-traveling? He talks about getting things jumbled up, not quite sure where he is. We know that he was, in the previous episode, out outside of the normal space-time continuum, has he seen Captain Tilly? My great regret in life, Pete, is that sometimes I'm exposed to spoilers. Okay, I try and live hashtag spoiler pure. I have the hashtag spoiler pure army out there. 
But I haven't been able to avoid the fact that somewhere this season, there is an episode directed by director of The Thunderbirds himself, Jonathan Frakes, and that it is apparently a Mirror Universe episode. I think that's what we are setting up. We are meant to be led astray that this is uh, this is time travel of some sort. Instead, we're going to get the zoop, 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 and we're going to realize that Captain Tilly runs the ISS Discovery with an iron fist, and she's gone from her meek and unsure self to the youngest captain because I killed the last three and things of that sort. And um, I'll watch that it. <laughs> that means that there somehow is like happy Stamets who's there and, and it, it's all going to be terribly wonderful. We'll see. I still think that discovery is going to be the reason a mirror universe exists. Um, Matt, I mentioned it before Chekhov's trilling tribble in the ready room has uh, Lieutenant Tyler even gone to the ready room at this point, or is the Tribble always conveniently, you know, getting his checkup with Dr. Culber when that happens? To my knowledge, we have not seen Tyler. No, in... it's not happened. It's it, it has not happened on screen. So I got to wonder, has he even been to that location? Well, I, I, I would imagine not. I mean, it's easy enough. It's easy enough from a story sense to not have Tyler visit the ready room. I also don't quite get a sense that even though it is so close to the bridge that I don't get the sense that that um, Lorca has people in there that often. Uh, that That is his very private sanctum, not kind of, you know, the office where you, you knock on Picard's door and they, you know, you kind of say, you know, I, I've, I've been feeling some feels lately, space dad. Um <laughs> Uh, to my mind, this episode only confirms that they are continuing to set up that as a big reveal. I don't, I don't um, take points off for the writing room potentially giving us a theory that we see coming because the finest shows nowadays with an internet community and with a voracious and smart audience. I mean, again, I won't spoil anything for Westworld, but there were theories in C there were theories in the third or fourth episode starting to make their way through Reddit and this and that, the other before the articles based on the Reddit threads were written by episodes, you know, five and six, but early on people were starting to put together some of those clues for the massive reveal that only happens towards the end of the season. I think the writing staff, there's, they're probably sitting here going, Oh my goodness. How is it that I'm getting tweets at 8.45 p.m. for episode 103 or 104, whatever it is. I, Tyler was episode 104 when he was revealed, right? Yes. So Maybe. I, no. Uh, I think he was episode five. Regardless, I'm sure that there are writers going, this isn't fair. We worked so hard on this. <laughs> and now I'm getting tweets before the episode is even over that, hey, we figured it out. I think that's the position they're in. I don't. I don't discredit them for that being the case. That's just what you get with a smart Star Trek audience in 2017. I, and I think that's what you get with the internet. We did not have the ability to, to have these fan theories and to have this conversation like this before. So Matt, when Tyler's talking about fresh roasted trout, uh, you know, knowing the ship of the dead, yeah, he, does he have a screen to look at and, and can read the Starfleet intel as it's coming in? But there's a familiarity. Brass tacks. Is he aware or unaware he is a Klingon sleeper agent? Don't wait for the translation. Answer the question. It's going to be a whole lot less fun 
if he's not aware that to me that's going to be story baloney even though you can do it in space i don't know how realistic it is in a in a real world sense you can program somebody to be a sleeper agent where they don't even know but in space with special bazamba waves that can help repress the this and that the other sure that's going to be a whole lot less fun than like wait these lips that kissed mine the dance in in uh in you know that that they shared so close the first kiss there the first kiss here pete they've had two first kisses and so on and so on to knock all of that down to take our character in burnham who is so so tender emotionally because of all she's been through and to say hey you finally found a guy you found love you found you found a, a pairing and you were wrong you were sleeping with the enemy that's too good to give up well tied to the Vok theory is of course the other side his tether to uh the klingon community with laurel she says she's got nothing left now. She wants to defect. Kovma's successor was chased away. He's forever gone. Uh, the anger that she has over the bodies here, albeit in Klingon, so maybe for show, maybe not. Um, does this further, does, does seeing what she go through further the Vok theory? I separate out that protestation in Klingon at the end from the rest of the ruse. I think that she was there to to check in on on Vok Tyler to get the information. What exactly will happen? You know, if and when things go down badly. Uh, we don't know. You know, assuming Vok Tyler to be the truth, we don't know what his end game is. But you know, Pete, if we see uh, Tyler volunteering for special, uh, you know, work corps. Uh, work course scrubbing this weekend you know it's probably so he can plant space dynamite there um, and their concern is you know or Laurel's concern is what will happen to him when he's found out um, I think that all of this is in line with she, she's come in she wants to check on what will happen to him she wants to ease her conscience and um, as soon as she finds out he'll be okay at best she's trying to to uh, get Cornwell off of there to kind of to continue some sort of anti-coal maneuver but as soon as that's found out she's ready to leave and it's it's at that point that she is uh that she's discovered is admiral cornwell dead i don't have enough of a sense of how this show plays with things like that to know for sure if this is agents of shield oh goodness yes sorry you're too minor a character to get a uh, a, a fond farewell I feel like she deserves a fond farewell and I feel like this is not the end of, of things for her. Um, let's give it two episodes if she doesn't come back or if, if we have the ship of the dead destroyed in the climactic mid season finale and we don't see her one bit, then say la vie. Finally, fan theory time and it centers around Admiral Cornwell here left seemingly unconscious in the sarcophagus ship uh, dead body room that nothing goes on with and there seems to be a lack of refrigeration. Uh, the fan theory, Matt, hold on to your hat. I'm holding on. Is that she is the character of Lethe from the Star Trek original series, season one, episode 10, 
uh, Dagger of the Mind, who was played by Susan Wasson, and the character was formerly a therapist. Yeah, I've seen that theory, and I know that it's. Uh, I think that the guy's name is Justin, who came up with it. Uh, it's you know one of our Twitter followers. We've interacted. Um, it's a really great theory. Here's why I don't like it. Sorry, Justin. Um, I think it's a little too cute to be like the secret backstory that you never knew, um, which is not always a bad thing. I mean, that's kind of like Rogue One, right? But to me, it's just a little too inside baseball. It'd be one thing if it was like, oh, we're building, a, you know, we're doing a multi-story arc about the building of a new space station. What's the space station? It's Space Station K7 from The Trouble with Tribbles, uh, which, by the way, we've already seen on screen uh, on one of the maps. It's already there. But I think it's just a, it's a little too like, you know, this is not like this isn't like the origin of um Marla McGivers, and we get this moment of, oh man, she's going to be the one who will betray the Enterprise crew for Khan. It's it's too minor a character in my mind to kind of get juice out of it. Now, is it possible? Yeah, but I feel like they've spent so much time telling us to not nerd out about that kind of stuff and to nerd out about new Star Trek that I feel like if this is the secret origin story of somebody from a 50-year-old episode, I kind of care a little less. With that, let's go to Hailing Frequencies. Hailing Frequencies open, sir. First up, Pete, we have a tweet from our pal Dennis, who uh, won one of the badges. That's at Tanz Asa. And he says, that was my favorite episode by far. Kept me guessing right to the end. I loved how Saru went all ape-s, all on his own, instead of the aliens being the cause. So, Pete, Dennis's conclusion there that and I know it's something we kind of discussed, but I really love how he hammered it home that that Saru was not taken over. He was not uh, zombified. It was not an alien in his brain, a, a slug in his ear, that this was Saru unplugged. This was Saru as his best self for the first time ever. Well, I, I can appreciate that, Dennis, but let's go on the text. The alien... Uh, interacted with him. It, it wasn't painful. It was disorienting. Then later, they entered him outside the sweat lodge and light emanated out of his head. And then he ran down um, his his crewmate and beat her up to prevent her from making this uh, communication. I don't know that he wasn't taken over. I I think there's far more evidence that he was taken over. That's where I'm greatly confused about this episode. And I think given that we're still with the Povins at the end of the episode, perhaps there's a reason why we're not meant to have total clarity. <laughs> Again, we kind of return to this idea that, that, um, <laughs> interestingly enough, this episode can't be fully judged until you've seen the next episode. Yeah. Uh, one other bit from Twitter, Pete. We ran a poll last night on Twitter. What did you think of the episode? Um, 36% said best yet. 36% said good. 14% said fair. And uh, 14% said other. And uh, they were going to reply and explain, but only one person did and patted themselves on the back for watching the Orville for free. Like you can't do both. There's the, Pete, is there a space law that you can only choose <laughs> Orville 
There's not. I don't know why when it comes to Star Trek. I am not current on both. I'm one episode behind the Orville only because we were at Thor on Thursday night. Otherwise, I would have watched it live. They've both been given a second season. Orville has gotten much better than its initial efforts. Um, Star Trek, I think, has been very consistently great all season. I happen to regard this as its worst episode of the season. I would say I regard, regard it as its least best episode of the season, which might sound like cutesy wordplay. To me, this is like a B episode, maybe B plus, and they've all been A minus to A to, you know, last week's episode, in my mind, I've now seen it three times, uh, was just phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Um, but again, I'm like, watch what you want to watch. Um, Don't tear down something yeah. else by comparison. Just you know, build up the thing you love and don't watch that other thing. How about that? You yeah, know, and, or, and this idea, then, then you're making it about money. Well, I'm watching it for free. So it's superior. Last time I checked, you pay more for better things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, watch Orville. If you want to watch Orville, watch discovery. If you want to watch discovery, that it, it's all okay. It's all okay. Pete, how can people be in touch with you to discuss uh, the Star Trek Orville. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at Peter P I E T E R J K E T L A A R nine thousand six hundred twelve followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast anytime you want. We are Fantastic Geek. That's Fantastic with the P and the H. Visit FantasticGeek.com. Email FantasticGeek at gmail.com. Tweet or Instagram us at FantasticGeek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash FantasticGeek. Think of it as a subspace way to keep all of the things that you are interested in close at hand. We shall return on the Discovery podcast feed next week to to break down what doubtless will be the epic uh, mid-season finale, fall season finale, however they are hedging it. Uh, super excited about that. Uh, then we'll be, uh, we'll be away from Discovery for a little while. But if you're listening to us on the Pop Culture podcast feed, we'll be, we will, of course, be breaking down the finale episode of Humans this upcoming weekend. And then, as mentioned at the top, a whole bunch of good stuff ahead. Getting uh, back into Marvel, more Marvel, as the kids say. Punisher, Runaways, Agents of Shield. Uh, back out to the other. If we can do Star Wars and Star Trek, you know, going to see, uh, going to see Last Jedi, Justice League. It's a super fun time to do podcasts and all this stuff. And we're glad to be with us. With that piece, I will say, obviously, there will be fun for you. But this is not that fun.